3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning and welcome to Thursday Breakfast. Good morning, Grace. Good morning, Carly. And good morning. Morning. And good morning, Kate. Good morning. All right, so what do we have on the show today? Sorry, my microphone keeps on, like, doing funny things. But what do we have on the show today? Uh, so we've got a pre-record that I did up in Minjin, Brisbane, with Michelle Dang. Um, she's a counsellor and narrative therapist, um, and she just facilitated a workshop on the weekend for people who are part of the social services um, and work in non-governmental organisations. Cool. And then after that, so at about 7.30, we'll be speaking with um, James Tresis, um, who's an analyst with the Australian Conservation Foundation, um, and he's also the co-author of... A report that found that the uh, Great Dividing Range will become um, unsuitable for 26 native species within 60 years. So that would be fun. And then after that, we're going to hear from Mark, who's from Earthworker. So it's um, an organisation that's, you know, building workers' co-ops to try and fight climate change. Um, and then Hella Ibrahim and Tressa Leclerc will be coming into the studio to talk about... Um, a new uh, research funding um, for uh, research that they want to do, um, looking at um, how many sort of First Nations and POC writers um, are published. My name is Ian Ham, and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family, and even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au. A 3CR supporter. The 3CR Radiothon is fast approaching. And this year, we're asking you to power Radical Radio. That's right. It's with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon 2019... June the 3rd to the 16th. Power Radical Radio. Attention book lovers. The new International Bookshop is hosting our annual Big Red Book Fair. Come down to the Trades Hall in Carlton on Saturday the 29th of June from 10am to 5pm. As always, the book fair features thousands of books across all genres, all radically priced. There's also a barbecue and a showcase of radical posters. 
In order to make this fundraiser a success, we are calling for book donations now. So if you have books that need a new home, please get in contact via the website at nibs.org.au or on 9662 3744. That's 9662-3744. The new international bookshop, a 3CR supporter. All right, so we'll go straight into the news headlines. Kate, how are you this morning? I'm good, thank you. Um, so first up today, we have some quite concerning news coming off um, Nauru and Manus Island, where there have been a reported spike um, amongst suicide attempts and self-harm um, in the refugee communities there. So the report comes as the re-elected coalition government is obviously doubling down on its promise to repeal the medical evacuation bills. The Medipac bill sets out conditions by which um, sick refugees and asylum seekers on Nauru and Manus Island can be transferred to Australia for medical treatment, and it was passed last year by the Labor Party with the help of independent Karen Phelps. So on Tuesday, Treasurer Josh Frydenberg said, let me make it very clear it's our policy to reverse that legislation. It's a pretty black and white comment from the Treasurer there. Um, there are still hundreds of refugees and asylum seekers um, remaining on Manus and Nauru, but it's sort of not clear whether the government will be able to pass the bill because it looks like the Senate, which kind of hasn't been confirmed yet its full makeup, but it looks like it'll ha- be the Greens and Centre Alliance, which is the Nick Xenophon, otherwise known as Nick Xenophon team, will have the balance of power. If that's the case, they won't be able to repeal it at all because both of those two parties have said, no, we support it. So that's definitely one to watch in the coming weeks as the Senate makeup is confirmed. Um, and then next I have yesterday a really concerning report by the Salvation Army which showed that older women are becoming the face of poverty in Australia. So the number of people receiving financial counsel from the charity rose from 13,000 in 2013 to 18,000 in 2017, so a really big jump there. And the number of women, particularly aged between 55 and 64, using the charities, um, they call it the Money Care Service, rose 18% over those five years. Overall now, the charity says 60% of its clients are women, and 7% of them are under housing stress. So that's housing stress is kind of just... It's determined by when you're paying 30% of your mortgage, of your income on your mortgage or rent. Um, And it sounds quite low, but anything other than that puts you under a lot of financial strain. Um, Salvation Army Officer Major Paul Moulds has used the report to call for an increase of $75 a week um, to the welfare payment, which I think is the really key bit here because obviously so many people are starting to push for an increase in welfare that I don't think it can be ignored for much longer. Um, And lastly, I have some really cool news. So Budge Bim, um, which sits in the southwest of Victoria, is home to an ancient indigenous aquaculture system. And the site, as of yesterday, um, is one step away from gaining a very coveted place in the UNESCO World Heritage List following a decision by the International Council of Monuments and Sites in Paris. So the site 
itself is really significant because it contains evidence of a large eel and fish farming system that was built, um, they think, 6,600 years ago. And according to UNESCO, and, and I'm going to use a quote here, the site challenges the common perception and assumption of Australia's first peoples as having all been hunter-gatherers living in resource-constrained environments. So the nomination will be formally considered by the World Heritage Committee um, when it meets in July, and it looks like everything points to it going through, which if UNESCO accepts um, the recommendation, it will be the only Australian site, only and first Australian site listed solely for its Aboriginal cultural values. Thanks. It's National Volunteers Week and 3CR would like to thank the 400 plus amazing volunteers who power our radical radio. Bringing you independent news, critical views and incredible specialist music programs. Thank you, thank you, thank you. What would Melbourne's Airways be without you? You You all deserve deserve a gold star. 10 out of 10 3CR volunteers. 10 out of 10. Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counselling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between queer Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1800 542 847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. A 3CR supporter. Sacred, pause, ancient, 
truths and the workings of the grounds. The creeks and the rivers, forests with snakes liver, bird calls the liver of truths and lost fiction. The fog's holy halo, crystallize and glisten. Now we're placed with street names, unique smiles, lines, space, comfortable and smitten. Roads and avenues, central business district, spiritual lassitude, laws of metaphysics overtaken by the laws of these long lost mystics. Preceded the present, new type of linguistics causing nations conflated, seemingly cryptic for confusion, word and rampant for deeply intrinsic devastation, different, severed to the ancient rocks. Vaporized out of sight on a soon to be broken down plot. Omens I can pair, seeping into sight, time to awaken, pay respect. The ancestors in the land of miss every child, woman, and man, no matter where you stand. The ancestors in the land, so why I pay respect. The ancestors in the land of miss every child, woman, and man, no matter where you stand. The ancestors in the land, so why? Back was Ancestors by Dreaming Now. And now we're going to be playing um, a pre-record that I did up in Minjin on the weekend. Um, and it's with a counsellor, narrative therapist and workshop facilitator, Michelle Dang. Um, now, she's from Healing and Justice, and the workshop was really focused um, and catered to social workers or people that work in social services. Um, and Michelle um, ran a yeah, really incredible workshop that was about uh, thinking about strategies and tactics um, of how to subvert the narrative um, when working in these organisations. So here it is. I'm here with Michelle Dang and we're sitting in a really beautiful space um, in Minjin, Brisbane, um, here on Yagara and Turrbal country. Um, it's a very sunny day up here. Um, and yeah, I'm here with Michelle. And so, Michelle, could you just um, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Hi, Carly and everyone. Um, so, I am a migrant settler of Vietnamese background. Um, I've been living and working um, here in Minjin for about, well, I've been living here for about 20 years and working for about 10 um, I am one of six kids to my parents. Um, I've been kind of working in social justice, uh, social services for about 10 years and then recently started my own practice called Healing and Justice. So that's just a, a bit about me. Yeah, beautiful. So um, you've been doing some individual counselling work and then you're also now moving into organising, facilitating more workshops in Minjin. Um, and I was fortunate enough to actually attend one today that was about um, ways of thinking um, and also doing different uh, tactics and understanding different strategies of how to work in um, NGO and social service spaces that may not necessarily reflect all of the same politics um, and ideas that you have. 
Um, so, Michelle, can you just maybe start off by talking about why you decided to organise this workshop in Brisbane? Yes, that's a really good question. Um, so, as I mentioned earlier, I worked in the sector, mostly in the anti-violence sector, for about 10 years, um, doing counselling, community development work, and what I was um, not surprised, well, maybe initially surprised, but um, realised pretty soon was that um, even within these radical, so-called radical spaces uh, where we were meant to be doing feminism, where we were meant to be addressing or responding to patriarchy and men's violence against women, I noticed that the violence was being replicated within and between people in workspaces and that there was a lot of injustices or oppression occurring, you know, whether that was through um, transphobia or racism or um, ageism, ableism between workers and also onto our clients. Um, so a lack of analysis of power and privilege is, I guess, one way to see it. And um, now that I'm working as a supervisor and a counsellor, I get to consult with a lot of people who are in those spaces, who are inside the system. And one of the things that I hear very frequently is a sense of despair or helplessness about responding or taking action. People often leap quite quickly into like, um, yeah, but let's take action, let's speak up, let's do all these things, and then um, feel really disappointed or despairing when uh, the change doesn't occur, when systems don't transform. And so swing back into despair. So it's this swing from despair to like individualism where they feel like they can change things. And what the workshop is trying to create is a conversation that let's look at a third way. How can we think about this differently? How does change happen? And what are the small steps that we can take to get there? How can we honour resistance in its many forms rather than seeing it in grand schemes? And I think, I feel like I've brought some, like, um, a lot of the thinking, knowledge and wisdom from survivors who have experienced sexual violence and domestic violence about, um, you know, that we're always constantly living under the threat of violence or th violence, but we're always responding as well. And just because we can't stop the violence doesn't mean um, we're complicit or doesn't mean that we're um, just passive. It just means we're responding to the best of our abilities in the ways that we can. So, yeah, so the workshop was really about honouring resistance, was about exploring what we called sneaky strategies, so covert strategies, um, which can sustain us in the work. Could you just... Yeah, tell readers a little bit more, uh, listeners, sorry, a little bit more about um, the, the tactic of silence and other tactics as well yeah. that you talked about. Yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that uh, skill up because um, I think for me that skill has become significantly important to highlight and honour in the context of working with um, children and uh, people who have experienced significant um, control, power, oppression in their lives where they have been silenced and where speaking up would have meant the end of their lives. They would have, it would have been a death sentence in many cases, you know, um, so the backlash of speaking up. And so 
when I've spoken to survivors about how they survived, how they got through, how they managed, a lot of them often would say they fell silent. They said nothing so that they could de-escalate the situation and they could um, calm the person um, or to show like that they weren't interested or not with, you know, not going to go along with a joke. Um, and I was talking to um, a narrative therapist in Canada, her name's Angel Yuen, about her work with children um, and her use of, you know, honouring silence and she called it the skill, skills of silence. And for me, that was like a wow moment, like skills of silence. I've never thought about it in that kind of way, that silence can be a skill and not just a like a trauma response. It is a trauma response and a, you know, a survival strategy, but also a skill, like how can we skillfully use silence? Particularly, you know, there are many moments in our lives or in our working context which actually call on us to, like when we lose words, you know, that expression, like I was lost for words. And I think that says a lot, you know, like speaking up, yes, can say a lot. And when something is so horrible and shocking, like one of the best ways that I have found support is when a friend shows her support through just, you know, through silence, through acknowledging the pain of it. Um, so, yeah, I think it can be used to show disapproval. Um, it can be used like a being expressionless. Expressionless can be used to show you're not going along with something. Um, and it can be used to show sorrow or solidarity. Yeah, absolutely. It's so powerful um, when silence is used, and especially, I think, in today's society as well. We just have such a fast-paced society um, where everything is just flying at us and actually like to take a breath and to say, oh, this, is, this can actually be used as a tactic, um, is very powerful. Um, what are some of your other favourite sneaky tactics to use? Other favourite ones, uh, um, I really like the idea of um, uh, skills of conjuring, and that is about... That sounds like magic. <laughs> it is magic. Um, you know, I mean, I think that um, in a lot of the work that we do, we're recruited into or invited into working in ways that exclude the client you know, like physically exclude them, whether it's like child safety meetings where we're asked to represent the client's needs or case management meetings or whatever it is, right? Like um, it's centred on the professional, centred on um, the person who's deemed the expert. And the danger of that is like that clients or the person who is the most marginalised or oppressed, their uh, stories and needs uh, fall on the, you know, they 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 are sidelined, and so we can't always bring people physically with us into the spaces because of time, resource, because of legal structures, whatever it is. But we can conjure them in into the spaces that we are at, and what I mean by that is like, you know. Um, remembering and recalling their stories and experiences and holding them really close to us as we're walking into a meeting representing their stories. Um, and I do that all the time. One, to keep me grounded, because sometimes I walk into these spaces and I'm like, 
I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm not an expert. I don't know much about like neuroscience or trauma, but I do recollect and recall people's stories. And so for me to be able to honor that with people's consent and bring it into the space, I feel like I can be more um, client-centered or like true to people's words rather than um, pretending that I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Um, Would you mind telling listeners how they can um, follow your work on social media? Yes, um, now I have to remember all my social media names. Um, on Facebook, um, it's uh, my practice name is Healing and Justice, so you can just search for that. Um, or I think the the tag thing is like at Healing uh, and Justice B N E, and on Instagram it's Healing and Justice. In 2019, 3CR has the power. Add your support during the annual Radiothon to Power Radical Radio. Radiothon starts 3rd of June. To donate, call 039419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2019. Power Radical Radio.
So that was uh, Nora uh, by Karajala Kiridara, um, or, other, or otherwise known as the Rain Song. Um, next up, or on the line, we have James Tresice, who's, poli- who's a policy analyst for the Australian Conservation Foundation. Good morning, James. Hi, thanks for having me. No, thanks for coming on. Um, so you recently co-authored uh, a report that found that the Great Dividing Range will become climatically unsuitable for 26 native species within 60 years. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. So what we did was we were interested to look at the basically climate change impacts on Australia's native wildlife in the Great Dividing Range. For your listeners, that runs from the tip of Cape York uh, right down to... Uh, you know, the hills just outside of Melbourne and beyond. Um, so it's, it captures, you know, most of eastern Australia. And what we wanted to know is, you know, how does climate change affect their habitat? Um, and what we found was that it has a pretty serious impact, basically. And, and, and well, what did, what did you find? So, yeah, the, the species, um, basically what we found was that they were under a business-as-usual scenario where we don't do much to control emissions and, you know, keep burning coal and the other things <clears throat> that uh, are going to contribute to dangerous climate damage, uh, that we're going to find that the climate suitability for species habitat um, is going to disappear for 26 species. Um, 11 of those are only found in the Great Dividing Range. So basically what it tells us is that you know, unless we can do something to address um, climate change, we are going to see um, an acceleration in species extinction in eastern Australia. Um, even under a moderate climate change scenario uh, where we do um, curve emissions, we are still going to see um, 11 endemics, uh, in which are species that occur nowhere else, um, uh, disappear from the Great Dividing Range. But there is hope in this story, and the research wasn't just to tell a negative story. The research was actually to look at where the species need to move, and that was the focus of the research. So we looked at um, 1,062 species, and we looked at their distribution models. And what we found is that depending on the policy treatment we apply, um, there is huge hope to kind of connect and restore habitats uh, across the Great Dividing Range, which will enable species to adapt to um, climate change. Can you tell us a bit of, a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So basically what we found is that the areas uh, in north of Queensland, up near the Cape York, um, uh, and also in northern New South Wales, where we've got really uh, you know, intact ecosystems, basically forests that are still standing um, and that uh, species can move from their existing, existing habitats then it makes a lot of sense to try and protect those places and those places will become future climate refuges for species as they shift along. So one of those species, um, to, to give an example, would be uh, the blue-winged parrot, which migrates from Tasmania up to the mainland. It's um, a distant cousin of the orange-bellied parrot, uh, which has a lot more attention, but is a lot more in danger. Now, Bird Life Australia, um, through their bird data project, is discovering that there have been dramatic declines in the blue-winged parrot. And what we're also discovering is that the habitat suitability under climate modelling is that, that uh, their available habitat is going to shrink. So if we're going to take a, you know, um, a prepared approach to 
biodiversity management going forward, we need to be thinking about where is this species going to need going forward? What are the threats to that species and how can we address those in a, in a policy sense? And that's what this research tells, um, partly tells us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so uh, as part of as part of the research, what else um, sort of recommendations uh, were found, or were were what other recommendations were based on the study? Yeah, so we found that there were two kind of key mechanisms that we need to start thinking about. One is protecting intact ecosystems, and that um, has really significant benefit, probably for about six hundred and. Um, 73 of the species that we did the models for, and the models were just for uh, vertebrate fauna, so animals. Um, For 270 species, we found that actually um, protecting intact habitats isn't going to kind of support their climate suitability, you know, their their need to adjust to a changing climate. And so what that meant was that we were looking at, well, what are the restoration projects that we need to apply? And so... Mm -hmm. In certain areas of Australia, there are going to be needs to undertake what we consider to be environmental stewardship or restoration projects where we're recreating habitats, we're supporting farmers and traditional owners and other land managers to um, manage country and um, for the benefit of biodiversity. And so there's a range of different policy tools. Um, and what we found is that in certain places, geographically, um, protecting intact ecosystems are really important, but in other Areas it will be critically important to kind of connect connect patches of habitat and create corridors. Mm-hmm. So you've kind of touched on it a little bit, but I was wondering if you could speak to maybe the area just outside of Melbourne and what's you know needed in that area to try and stop these species disappearing. Well, I think Melbourne, the areas, the areas around Victoria and mm-hmm. around Melbourne. Um, I think one of the key things that we found uh, consistently, no matter which kind of model we look at, is that Central Highlands, um, uh, kind of to the northeast, and um, you know the, those forests, they're critical uh, under a, a range of scenarios. But in particular, under this one, because that's where species can actually start moving up uh, the topographic. Um, you know, they can climb mm-hmm. up the hill, basically, and so. Those areas of forest are going to be critically important. And I think not just from this study, those areas of forest are generally really important because of um, the ecosystem services that they deliver um, to us as people as well. Right? So they are a huge carbon sink, but they are also uh, an area that filters a lot of Melbourne's water supply. And so the ecosystem services that we get from those forests are critical as well. Those forests are also, with my understanding, areas that are getting logged at mm. the moment. Um, can you maybe speak on the impact that that's having on the environments up there as well? Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I think that's right. So we've got this kind of failed forestry regime in Australia with regional forest agreements. Um, and basically what it means is, from a biodiversity perspective, um, that we don't have uh, a sustainable forest system that's operating um, for the benefit of biodiversity at least, um, not to mention all the other ecosystem services um, that uh, those forests deliver. And so we really need to have a think and and look at where we should be undertaking forestry activities, logging activities, and um, I think there's a very strong case for um, getting uh, logging out of the Central Highlands, Um, but that needs to be done also in a way that will... Uh, support communities and um, and probably not alienate people as well. Mm-hmm. Recently, um, also, I went up there and was really shocked to see 
or the dead trees and the mountain ash. So can you maybe talk about the what's happening with that um, kind of tree species as well? Um, it's not really my area of expertise, um, but the you know there was huge fires that went through the those forests and those fires are definitely, you know, that we know that climate mm. change is going to accelerate the intensity of those fires and that forests that probably don't, aren't meant to burn as hot as they burn are going to burn much hotter. And so we saw that particularly in Tasmania over the past summer where um, areas of rainforest, areas of um, alpine heathland uh, that are not fire, what we'd call fire adapted, um, burnt in the in the summer bushfires. And so that will also be a compounding factor and um, a very difficult one, to be honest, for, for us to manage. Yep. Um, and so we, we, we sort of just touched on it, but just before, um, with, I guess, the sort of, like, you know, how our forests, uh, especially in Victoria, are being logged and how, like, the Victorian government is, like, sort of, Part, part of the, like forestry Victoria and that sort of stuff. So can we talk a bit about the political climate, especially since um, we've just got a conservative or the coalition just has been re-elected in? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess the politics are complex, hey, um, for um, logging in Victoria. And I think that is why, and I think one of the lessons we need to take out of um, the federal election is that we need to not leave com- communities behind when we start talking about certain things. And and so if we want to um, shift practices, we're going to need to find a way to work with communities. But I think business as usual isn't sustainable. It's not viable. And so we definitely need to have a different approach to managing um, those forests. And, and they are economically far more valuable to Victoria as a, as a water filtration, as a, a tourist destination, as... Um, carbon sink than they are as a forest to get cut down. Yeah, and like especially since like, um, so there's been like, what, a 38% uh, 38% national environmental funding cut since the coalition came in in 2013. Um, so I guess, I suppose, you know, what else, if 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 we look at current trends and, um, you know, the political, like how it's, how environment is used as a political football, um, you know, what other methods can we go, can we do, or what, what other things can we do um, in terms of like finding funding or like other solutions that are like outside the state? If that sure. Makes sense. I think, well, <laughs> yeah, no, I get the question. So I think there is a couple of challenges there, right? So one is that we have seen, you're right, we have seen this huge decline in environmental funding. And I think, you don't stop fighting that fight. We need to make the case that the loss of biodiversity is a clear market failure and it's really difficult to ask the private sector or the philanthropy sector to pick all of that up. Um, where we have clear market failures is a clear role for government and what we're seeing is that the government has cut and cut funding for biodiversity programs. So we used to see uh, $400 million a year, for example, go out under the National Heritage Trust thereabouts. Um, and that is declined substantially. We're now talking about um, $200 million or less um, a year going out for projects, programs like land care and other environmental programs from the federal government. We've seen similar trends at the state level. They're not all uniform. You know, obviously there's different types of government, but the bulk of funding for biodiversity protection, particularly those outside of national parks, comes from the federal government. Um, so 
there is a huge challenge there in us holding government to account, irrespective of who the political party in power is. Um, you know, we are talking about uh, less than five cents in every hundred dollars that the government spends going to environmental programs. And mm. you know, when you if you were to, you don't even it doesn't even appear on the back of your tax return. So, I think that's a real um, issue that we need to kind of grapple with and kind of say, actually, no, we need we do need government to step up and kind of address this. Um, but in terms of other sources of funding, there are other sources of funding. They are all, you know, um, innovative, challenging, interesting, but we need to kind of have the framework to, to leverage those um, amounts of funding. So we do see government trying to um, go to the private sector and ask them to contribute to threatened species projects. Um, it's a very haphazard approach, um, piecemeal. We do see um, programs trying to leverage funding from um, other Areas, um, I think one of the biggest opportunities we have is probably going to be around if we can ever have a sophisticated debate in this country again on um, climate change. Um, what we know is that nature is a really important part of the solution to climate change. And so people who are willing to go out and plant trees and protect nature and, and plant bi- do biodiverse plantings um, with a sophisticated approach to, to um, you know, climate change there is entirely a legitimate approach where you create a, a workable market there. Um, but I think, you know, that debate uh, passed us by some years ago at the moment and, you know, we're going to regroup and see where we can get to again. Oh, fingers crossed. Uh, I suppose, like, just before we wrap up, um, how can people find out more or get involved? Um, so I think, well, from a... Um, uh, so I work for the Australian Conservation Foundation and they can certainly... Um, you know, sign up to our email list and they'll get um, a range of information not only from us on in terms of environmental protection but also um, our climate campaigns. I think there, and that's at acf.org.au, I think there are a range of other issues. Some people um, can even just go and, like, join their local park care or land care if they want to get more hands-on uh, in terms of planting trees. But, you know, if they want to know what's going on in the world um, in terms of environmental policy, yeah, definitely join the list. Great. James, thank you so much for joining us this morning. No worries. Thanks for having me. Thanks. We appreciate, like, you mob and all the people coming and visit us and doing stuff like this, you know. It's very good. It keeps a positive mindset in our mind, you know, and we really appreciate it. Because of her we can, yeah. I want to be a better, better man, yeah. Because of her we can. Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates across Victoria. You can listen to audio from this year and previous years online anytime. How do you rehabilitate someone? They just put you in a cell and tell you this is how long you're going to do and it's meant to rehabilitate you, you know. Rehabilitation starts when you get out. That's when your life begins again, doesn't it? In here, your life's on hold. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars. Or if you'd like us to post you a free CD, contact the station on 03 when I first come to this jail, it was about 10 years ago, and, and I was a young one. A whole heap of young ones come off the truck there the other day, and, and they called me Auntie Marlene, so it helped me recognise them. I realised I pulled myself up like, yeah. They're starting to look up to me, so I've got to represent and do the right thing now. Just go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars.
Hello, you're listening to Thursday Breakfast on 3CR. Up now, we have Mark in the studio with us. Thanks so much for coming in, Mark. No worries. Thanks for having me. Um, so we're going to be talking about Earthworker. So straight up, can you just tell us what Earthworker is and what it does? Yep, sure. So Earthworker was started over 20 years ago um, by an alliance between trade unionists and environmentalists. Mm-hmm. And it was looking at, back then, a whole group of people got together and was trying to work out, um, well, how do we respond to the reality of the climate crisis, and this was over two decades ago now, just <laughs> as a depressing footnote, um, um, and um, also how do we stop um, people with powerful interests wedging the community by using the whole jobs versus environment um, crap, basically, that that whole kind of um, frame. So mm-hmm. um, from there, it's gone through lots of different... Uh, like it looked differently at different times, but eventually what it, the strategy that we landed on was um, to build a network of worker-owned cooperatives in sustainable industries across Australia with sister cooperatives in other parts of the world. And um, in that way, building up dignified work for, for, for people um, whilst also ensuring that we're not destroying the planet and also not harming the communities we live in as well. Um, so there's a particular focus with our worker cooperatives on communities that are currently dependent on resource extractive extractive industries like you know coal, timber, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, we've you know, I can talk about where we're at now, but <laughs> that's kind of Earthworker in a nutshell. Yeah. Cool. Maybe you should talk about where Earthworker is at the moment and what's <laughs> going on like with the project. Forecasting your questions. I love it. Um, it's great. <laughs> so so where Earthworker is at now? So it's been a long road, but we now have um, we've kind of got two operational worker-owned cooperatives, um, and we've got some more emerging. Um, kind of the main, like the flagship. Uh, worker cooperative is uh, it's called Earthworker Energy Manufacturing Cooperative. It's based down in Morwell in Latrobe Valley, so where traditionally the um, coal-fired power industry has been um, based. Um, so we've got a working factory there now, which is um, manufacturing solar hot water systems. So um, that, that's Earthworker Energy. So that's now that only very recently like became operational in the last few months, um, and then. We also have Red Gum Cleaning Cooperative, which is based more in the northern suburbs in Melbourne, and that is uh, now it's just going gangbusters. So there, that's a it's a cleaning cooperative owned by the workers as well, and they use like green cleaning practices and that kind of thing. But they and they've just been hiring more and more worker owners because they've got so much work, which is great. Cool. So you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I was wondering if you could speak to how you came to the decision of the workers' co-ops and kind of a bit more of the politics behind that. Sure. Yep. So, why workers' co-ops? I mean, it's okay. There's there's a few different levels. On one level, it's what works. So, mm-hmm. you've got capitalist institutions and organisations which are basically saying we can't respond to the climate crisis. That is, do not have the means because their profit, like their main focus, has to be profit, and so mm-hmm. they can't. And actually, Earthworker at one point was trying to partner. This is over a decade ago. It was trying to partner with large capitalist organisations um, to um, do manufacturing of like wind turbines and that kind of stuff. So it'd be union jobs, but a capitalist kind of organisation. And before, like just as they were about to sign the deal, the whole the whole capitalist business just went bast, um, and it just failed. And and people realised, well, we can't rely on on them. Like we have to actually own it. We have to have control. And so, 
workers' co-ops mean that um, we've got control, like the workers own the place and they, they decide what happens democratically. Um, it also means that it can't be, well, it's not going to be offshored because they're not going to offshore their own jobs as well. So we be able to keep that democratic control in that way as well. But also, I mean, worker co-ops, um, I don't know, I could talk a lot about like going on a massive rant about neoliberalism, which I'll, I'll restrain myself from, but... I don't mean little, like... little rant on neoliberalism. <laughs> <What's that? laughs> so, I mean, basically, you know, we've had now, what, like 30 years or something like that, neoliberalism, mm. we've been marinating it, like it's yeah. horrible, and it's like the, the consciousness that creates is just toxic, okay? So, like, you've got a situation where with neoliberal institutions, with privatisation, more and more like th- that whole project is about reducing people to consumers right like it's con- it's that's that's our role is like we are self maximizing return maximizing consumers you know <laughs> like that's the that's the political role of most people except for like a few ruling elite kind of thing yeah, yeah? so there's no genuine control left in in that with that within that neoliberal project except for like purchasing power, which is like, what is that? <laughs> so yeah. anyway, so with it's like, how do you respond to that? I mean, um, when you've got that that situation, you've got people who are more and more disengaged, and you've got a concentration of power as well. So what what we're saying, what we're doing is we're part of a broader project. Earthwork is only one project that's working on in this front but it's about saying how do we create the spaces where people actually are re-engaging and, and able to practice collect that collective decision making that other way of being which is that we all are collectively trying to work out how do we how do we shape the world how do we live together and that kind of thing mm-hmm. and um the worker co-ops are a democratic space where you can actually do that you can actually have that um that felt sense and that build up that ability and the skills and the consciousness of people actually um, together work controlling things, together making collective decisions. Yeah. Um, I'm really appreciating the rant, by the way. <laughs> I think it's great. And one of the reasons, I guess, why I wanted you to come on was because of what happened during the election mm-hmm. and how quite often... No, now it feels like we, and we are, you know, in a place now where we're probably not going to take any real action on climate change for a long time, but also that there's alternatives outside of mm. electoral polit- politics to kind of make that happen. Yeah, I'd say it's alongside, all right? So, because, like, yeah. like we're, we're, yes, we're, what we're about is, well, so there's a lot of stuff with the election which is which is relevant here, I think, mm-hmm. I agree. Like, I mean, yeah. refle- reflecting, as I'm sure we all have, kind of. Um, but, um, like, one thing is that 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 thing of, like, resource-extractive industries, it's such an effective wedge of, um, like, for the Tories, for the Liberals, right? Like, they yeah. love it. They love it. They're so happy about it, you know? They're just, like, um, this thing of you know, being able to say that they're representing blue-collar workers and all this because they're like, oh, let's just keep resource-extractive industries up. It's so it's so good for them. And for us, we're saying we need to make sure that we're not leaving behind communities that have traditionally relied on resource-extractive industries, all right? Like, we can't do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that, you know, is in a way where we don't just talk about it. We need to show it. Like, there's this thing of how do we build trust, Right, with regional communities, how do we build trust with those resource extractive communities? Because they've had a lot of people come in and say a lot of really nice things and then just screw them over, you know? Like in the Latrobe Valley, it's happened a lot. So people are pretty resentful and distrustful. So mm-hmm. we're saying, okay, 
to, to build a political project which um, is actually has power and actually has momentum, we need to build trust. And one of the ways to do that is to show people rather than tell people. So if you have actually something on the ground, as we do now and more, we have the factory there, people come to the factory, they see it, like, all right, you've got skin in the game, you guys are for real, cool, and people have started getting on board. Like, we've got people now at the factory who are working on the floor who are ex-coal, like, we're in the coal industry, right? So that has a real impact, you know, Um and it builds trust and it builds momentum, it builds a gravity because we've got something to show. Um, that's one thing. I mean, and as far as, you know, how do we build, a, uh, like, big responses, which we need mm-hmm. to, the, to the situation with climate, part of it is building that trust across communities and building that fabric. And as part of, part of it is building hope as well, like a grounded hope. Like, you know, we've, we said this thing of we've had over 30 years of neoliberalism now, like there is a really diminished sense of what's possible, even amongst, especially amongst the left, I think. We often have a really, like, diminished sense of, like, what we can actually do. And to change that, it's very hard to shift that without um, uh, things that people can touch and feel and see. But when you come, like, you know, I was in a meeting with the, uh, with the folks on the factory floor yes, you know, on Tuesday, and, man, it was so powerful, like, watching those people who are, like, the metal workers and stuff actually making decisions collectively about how to run the factory. I'm like, oh, we can do this, you know. But you need those physical things, I think, to build a grounded hope. Mm-hmm. The last thing just around, like, the electoral stuff, and, like, we, we aren't saying that um, people are going to just do this without... Like, we just have to all build, like, worker co-ops like ourselves completely outside the state. Like, we are pushing hard for the state to um, fi- finance this, and basically we're pushing hard for the state, especially the Victorian government, because we've got more purchase there, with mm-hmm. um, uh, to actually create what we call public social or public commons partnerships. Like, instead of outsourcing stuff to some capitalist institution we're saying no you you if you're going to outsource it that's fine but you do it to worker cooperatives you do it so it's democratizing rather than just privatizing if that makes sense yeah yeah oh i got a question mm-hmm. um so what has been the response from the state like what how does how's that been working um look yeah in some ways positive but it's it's very hard to it's it's a new concept it's hard to get people's head, people's head around it but yeah there's, there is there is people who see the sanity of this you know that there's people within the the labor government and other parts of even the nationals are behind us parts of the nationals because they do see that even if they disagree with some of like our histories and stuff you know like the fact that we're, a lot of us are, like you know radical leftists and whatever that kind of stuff they see that we're actually doing something that works basically and and it's actually a way out and so um also i mean the, the state doesn't want to govern and doesn't want big national they're saying that to us we don't want to nationalize and have big centralized things that's fine we say okay that's fine but if you're going to outsource do it to worker cooperatives and there's this australia this thing we're doing down here in little old melbourne we're not the only ones doing it it's happening all over the world like there's people who are pushing for this project some people are calling it like a recommoning project where it's like recreating the commons where you've got um You've got governments who are and councils who are partnering with worker co-ops or other cooperatives to be able to have it so that there's a direct ownership in the community, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've kind of touched on it a little bit when you're talking about um, communities that extract resources, mm. and I guess a lot of what we saw during the election campaign as well, and have for the last couple, for I don't know, a long time, is this idea of pitting environment versus jobs, yeah. but also environment movement versus unions. Mm-hmm. So I guess you guys are 
both of those things and mm-hmm. trying to talk about all that together. Can you kind of talk about the importance of that and how maybe we can counter some of those narratives of that being really two separate things that can't coexist? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously it's a really toxic narrative and now it's been just trundled out for years and years. But, I mean, I guess, again, what I would say is that the way we respond to that is by creating... Um, like creating these alternatives that people can see, you know. Um, I mean, again, when it's people, people need to talk about earthwork. If you're an environmentalist, you can talk about earthwork. Earthwork is yours. You can say, look, we're doing this now, you know. Um, and trade unionists as well can talk about, well, we're not just like out for um, self-interest for our members. We're also doing this. This is part of trade unionists and environmentalists can own this project. I mean. <sighs> Yeah, I would just say that we need to keep, like, there's probably multiple strategies, but with Earthworker, the main way we're doing that is by creating these um, these worker co-ops that people can see, you know, that people can actually come to, you know. So down in Morewell, as people visit the factory and more, 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 more people see what we're doing, there's more and more support because it's like they see that we're actually, you know, doing it. So... Um, I think that can cut through, you know. Like, I mean, there is a lot of distrust uh, between the movements. I think it's a remembering that we, we're we actually, we're sister movements, you know. Like, we've come from the same places, which is this idea that, you know, people need to be able to have dignified work. But part of dignified work is also um, not doing work that harms the environment or harms things socially. Nobody wants to do that. No one actually, no human actually wants to just like do work that screws the environment. No one. But we're forced to, or a lot of people are forced to because of the current context and the options we're given, you know, like the what, the industries that are supported, the industries that capitalists are like, okay, well, these, these are the ones you should work in, a resource extraction, especially in Australia, mm-hmm. military, uh, that's, that's like, hey, that's the big industry, let's do that. And the other one is like, um, service sector, you know, which is so vulnerable to fluctuations in the economy, right? So, and also often quite mundane and just shit work, you know? <laughs> so it's like, no one wants that. Now, the thing is that there's not, people need to have viable options and strategies to get out of those industries, okay? And they need to be offered that. We need to show that that's actually possible, you know? Um, I think just quickly, just also, there's an important piece of knowing our history, you know? Like, no people, like, especially environmentalists need to know about the history of, like, the Builders Labor's Federation and the Green Bands and the fact that, you know, in Australia, we do have a history of trade unions and communities working together to protect and defend green spaces and um, community spaces as well. Like, I'm not going to go into history now because of time, but I think that is part of it as well. Yeah, maybe we'll get you back or get Dave in yeah. to talk about that. Um, so lastly, is there anything else quickly before we wrap up? Yeah, so just um, we are, um, like we've got those worker co-ops, there's more emerging now. So we've got Earthwork Energy Manufacturing Co-op and Redgum. If people want to start work co-ops or have ideas, please get in touch. Like we've got an online presence, you can just Google us, etc. But um, also, yeah, we are pushing for a big um, shift in this commenting project. So we've currently, one of the big projects we're coming up is, is a Green the City project, which we've started partnering with all the construction unions and other entities as well to basically green up the whole Melbourne CBD. So, mm-hmm. and that will be a worker-owned um, process. So it's kind of like for people who are familiar with the Green New Deal, like... Yeah. Australia is doing that as well. It's not just the Yank, sorry. No, but yeah, anyway, so we're doing it here as well. And just know, know about that and keep your eyes on that too. Cool. 
Thanks so much. Um, for oh, wait, just before, um, you said that um, people could just um, jump online. Um, yep. Do they just type Earthworker? Yeah, so just Google Earthworker Cooperative, Facebook. Yeah, I'm sure that, um, do you guys have like a page or something like that? No. Kind of. Okay, fine. <laughs> anyway, yeah, we're, we've got the usual online presence. So, yeah. yeah. Cool. cool. All right. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks, thanks for having me. me. Yeah, good to chat. In December 2017, Tanya Day, proud Yorta Yorta woman and much-loved member of the Aboriginal community, was travelling by train to Melbourne. When V-Line staff found her asleep, they called Castlemaine Police and she was removed from the train and charged with public drunkenness. Tanya died 17 days later as a result of head injuries sustained while in custody. This would never have happened had the recommendations of the 2001 Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody been implemented. Tanya Day's family is calling for the crime of public drunkenness to be abolished and for the implementation of genuine community health alternatives to incarceration. Please add your support by signing the petition at 3CR Reception, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, or online by entering Tanya Day Petition into your browser. Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counselling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between queer Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1-800-542-847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. A 3CR supporter. Brrr. Shirley Hood's back with a new show, Second Thoughts, coming to you on Monday, 27th of May, 1 to 2 p.m. on 3CR. See you then. Brrr. Okay, you're listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast on 8.55. It's now three past eight and we've got two amazing guests in the studio. So we have Hella Ibrahim and Tressa Leclerc. Good morning and thank you for coming in. Morning. Hello. Um, so firstly, I guess, do you, would you like to just introduce yourselves and talk about a bit, a bit about the work you do before we talk about the stuff? Sure, uh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm Dr. Tressa LeClaire. Um, I teach at RMIT as a casual, and I'm a member of the nonfiction lab, and I co-coordinate the um, present tense literary talk series. Mm. Um, my name's Hella. I am so far from being an academic. There is no doctor in front of my name. Um, I'm the editorial director of Jed Press. I also work as an editor in my day job. Um, yeah, that's, that's about it for me. No accolades. <laughs> um, well, I guess you've, you've just started this uh, project, this fundraiser. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. Um, well, it's a account um, looking at the First Nation writers and 
people of color that get published every year. So we're going to look at the year 2018. Mm. Just to start off, and then hopefully if it takes off, we should be able to continue tracking because it's important to measure progress, I think. Yeah. I mean, like now we've got so many opportunities. We've got so many festivals, um, so many initiatives. We've got like the Boundless Diverse Writers Festival. We've got books like Voices from the Intersection. But what we don't know is whether this is actually translating over to publications. Mm. So we thought we'd kind of start this initiative, do a count, and see sort of what's happening within the publishing industry and where we can improve. Yeah, and I think... I think you're right in that there is more opportunity um, at the moment. Um, we're definitely seeing more and more people come up, um, usually for smaller publications. I think people are more invested in self-publishing, um, which is different to vanity publishing. I'm not going to even look at that. Um, but there's also smaller presses, Lifted Brow started like, publishing um, books, and they generally do try to have a diverse list and other smaller, I would say, publishers, but I think there's still a gap in mainstream publishers. And if you look at prizes and things, like we are definitely, we're winning, where, <laughs> as if I write. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm just going to, it's like my favorite sports team, right? I was like, yeah, yeah, we totally like beat the other team at the ball. Um, no, but uh, writer, First Nations and other writers of color um, have been, I think getting more attention and the man Booker was just won by a translated um, uh, an Arabic text. I cannot remember her name, but by a woman of color. And so things like that are happening. Um, but yeah, as you say, is it is it translating to mainstream? Is it because we tend to focus on our little literary bubble? Melbourne is a city of literature, which means we have this whole thing about being better than everywhere else in Melbourne. So, you know, for me personally, I'm really excited to see um, whether I am just stuck in a Melbourne bubble of this like beautiful, diverse landscape, or if once we start looking outside and go outside a little like echo chamber, is it translating? Yeah, absolutely. And is it just are we getting noticed a little bit more mm. because it wasn't something that was necessarily happening before? Yeah. And are we being noticed for the right reasons as well? Because like, sure, people of color get published, but like, who needs another refugee story? I mean. Mm. That sounds bad. <laughs> I just mean we tend to talk about the tokenization, right? Tokenization. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, the question of what we're getting published in. Mm. Like, are people of color and First Nations writers being published more in nonfiction, for example, mm. oh. or are they being asked to create cookbooks as opposed to science fiction? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Exactly. Are we being tokenized through our writing? Like, are we only being focused on as the other as opposed to being respected for? just whatever we're writing. Mm. Again, not we. I don't write. But, you know, other people, <laughs> other brilliant writers, are they being, like, you know, are, is it just like, oh, you're Indigenous writer, Indigenous text? I think Clay Coleman talks about that a fair bit um, uh, because she is a specific writer um, but tends to get boxed. Or um, what was that prize where it's like all of these prizes and then uh, all of these categories and then it had an Indigenous category, which is great, but then they shoved all of the Indigenous people in there rather than being like, oh, a po like, you know, uh, you know what? I should not have started talking about this. I cannot even remember the name of the prize I'm talking about. But, anyway. but I mean, no, that's but the benefit as well. Mm. Like, if that's something that we find, then mm. we could benefit from also looking into how we can help more people to get published. Mm. I mean, you mentioned Claire G. Coleman, who is an absolutely amazing spec fic writer. Mm. And that would benefit everybody because we would be reading more of these texts. Yeah. These wonderful books. Mm. That often... Um, like quite more like 
complex with like different understandings of of things as well and like you know back to that tokenization stuff or you know like so just thinking i'm just thinking about media more generally Mm. um and how much like you know um first nations and people of color are boxed into those specific stories you know Mm. or you know oh we're too scared to do a story on this or slash you know that's what you're you're black or brown that's that's the story that you're going you're Mm. going to write you know um I guess, yeah, no, I just wanted to talk a bit more about yeah, that. Yeah, no, well, I just had to round. No, no, honestly, <laughs> that is my number one. That is what I talk about just nearly constantly, this whole, mm. like, oh, you're black, write us a black story. Mm. Or, like, oh, you're, like, I don't know, any other kind of intersectional marginalization. Or, like, oh, you're black and queer, write a black and queer story. Yeah. And it's it's literally what, like, my, one of my, like, biggest pet peeves. It's literally the reason I started Jed Press, and I think I've said this before on, like, 3CI even, um, and I say it constantly, where it's like, we can do so much more than that. Like, mm-hmm. we are not... And there is... Uh, I think there's a lot that gets said about... Um, uh, what is it called? Like, our identi- like identity politics and all of mm-hmm. that, where it's like, we do... Like, I personally do go out of my way to be like, I'm North African and Muslim, and I do... And I make a point of it, but I'm not... I'm not defined. I am. That's not. I am defined by yeah. it, but I'm not. De- yeah, it's not the in- or you or of who you are. You exactly. Know? <laughs> it's it's you know it's not the sum of my parts, as it were. Um, and I think that I think that comes across in writing as well, where you just it becomes this feature of you, or it becomes all all you are, as opposed to like. And I and again, I say this often, probably not on the radio, but like nobody talks to me about the fifth dimension. Like I really like talking about like. <laughs> quantum physics i don't understand it but i like talking about it but when was the last time anybody asked me that it's usually just like yeah like talk about people of color stuff which is fine i love talking about it but yeah it's not it's not the entirety of me or food i keep getting asked to talk about food <laughs> like i was getting feedback on a draft in a workshop and people were saying why don't you talk about chilean food mm-hmm. i was like well i talk about chilean food all the time just not in the story it's yeah. delicious <laughs> i know I mean, who doesn't love talking about food? But it's like, you know what? You know what? Food is also good. Kebabs. You can talk about kebabs. I don't have to talk about kebabs just because I'm like Arab or whatever. So, sorry, this has got down a ridiculous route. Now we're okay. talking about food. Are you happy, everyone? <laughs> well, well, let's tie it back to like, you know, how does this fit into the broader power structures then of mm. whiteness, maybe? Well, power is... Yeah, I mean, power is something that I'm always thinking about, and it's quite a difficult thing to pin down. I mean, who's, who has the power in these situations? Who is the industry? How do we act, or how does the industry act as gatekeepers? Mm. And who controls what gets published and what doesn't are all questions that I think are important to ask. Um, like, if there's an issue, studies like this have the potential to speak back and to create a dialogue about what's happening with the power by using objective facts and statistical research, like I'll give you an example. Like I was once talking to somebody and I said, you know, I think that uh, writers of color are underrepresented within the publishing industry. And they said, well, I don't think that's true. <laughs> Can you prove was that? This, was this a white man? Sorry. <laughs> well, and, <laughs> maybe. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, I was like, Oh, like, because I was trying to think of a study, and then I was like, 
Well, this is this is a really interesting question, and it, it kind of shows you the links I'll go to to win an argument, first of all. <laughs> but second, I mean, it does show you the power of statistical research, because mm. if you can quote a statistic in that situation, it really strengthens your argument. Yeah. And like just to follow on from that, like yes, statistical research definitely helps. Although with some people, honestly, you could you could put like you could I don't know put research in front of their face and they'll just be like, no, nah, I still don't believe you. Um, but even beyond that, because I've I've found the same thing. Like if people haven't like directly said to me, I don't believe that um, people of color are underrepresented, um, although they do. Uh, I still find myself when I'm. Uh, justifying uh, what I do with Jed or when I'm applying for grants where it's like, okay, but can you prove there's a need for this? And it's like, look around you. Look around you. There's a need for it. But it's just so much easier to get institutional backing, I think, when you can give them some cold hard facts. Interesting thing, though. Um, so once we started, so once I've, I've been pushing this fundraiser really hard, like I'm so sure that all of my friends on Facebook and my like Twitter followers are just absolutely sick of me because every day it's like two or three times a day shoving it in their face, <laughs> but, and I, and I've been obsessing over it. So I just check it constantly. So I was checking it, uh, either yesterday or the day before, I cannot remember. And saw somebody new had shared it and I was like, oh, I don't know this person, um, when he clicked on the profile. And saw what they've written on, and I won't, I won't quote what he said, um, cause it was one ableist and two just generally horrible, but he, like, it's moved beyond, I think once we started this fundraiser, it's moved beyond, we don't believe that there is a lack to, oh, well, if there is a lack, it's because, and this is what this guy was saying, he, like, you know, this fundraiser, this research is ridiculous. The reason people of color don't get published is because they don't write well. Um, and they're not writing good enough stories. And maybe if they were more better educated, um, then maybe they would get published. And apart from um, the classist implications of that, like you do not need an education to be a good writer, but whatever, there is that. I think I think people will bend over backwards to kind of find ways out of it. So I'm also really interested to see, like, and again, and I was saying this to Tressa yesterday, it's not that I think that we'll do the study and we'll immediately, like, discover that there is a lack. What I would really, like, what I would love to see, like, very optimistically, is that we do the study and the study shows that actually we are equal and actually we're getting equal representation and look how many of us are published. And I'm going to be like, that is freaking amazing. Like, let's keep up the good work. I really want that to happen. I don't think it will, but I really want it to. But I wonder if we do, if that's not what happens, and if we do find that there are gaps that can be filled, whether then will then the next step will actually be a whole lot of convincing people that um, the gap isn't there because we're bad writers, but because of institutional racism and structural and and barriers and all of that. So I think it'll be I think it'll be really interesting to find out later. Yeah, um, and it'll be hugely beneficial, I think. And Oh yeah, sorry. Oh no, 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 that's fine. Um, and is it is it just um, so it's it's concentrating within the publishing publishing industry? Can we talk a bit about like what the study is actually going to like where the where are you counting the writers? Mm. I'll let you speak to that. Oh, Tresses, like the, the methodology. Only, like, yeah. <laughs> so as I mentioned earlier, I am not an academic. Um, we do have an executive team working on this, and they are made up of academics and authors and people who are generally know how to do research. Whereas I'm just like I like books. I'm going to help, but you know, not yeah. with methodology. The executive committee is um, Dr. Natalie Kanyu from VU, who's a writer as well, and she actually did the Stella Diversity Count. She was the co-director of the Stella Diversity mm. Count, um, which was a sort of initial study, but it was quite small, so this is a much bigger, more comprehensive study. And there's Professor Tony Birch, 
Um, there's Amberlynn Coy Molina, and there's Rebecca Lim, mm-hmm. Dr. Amberlynn Coy Molina, and Alison Whitaker. Um, did I get everybody on the executive committee? Uh, yeah, I want to say yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And then we've got we've also got a yeah. group of wonderful people um, helping out on the administration committee as well, and mm. that's yeah, that's that's so that's me. Um, Jackie, um, Jackie Tang, uh, Jess Meetsahi, and Marissa Wickermut. <laughs> oh, I always stumble over her last name. Forgive me, Marissa. Um, but yes, we do have an admin team. Uh, but anyway, um, so we don't, we don't so much look at, we're not making decisions about methodology, which is going back to you. What are we doing? Uh, for the methodology, yeah, uh, we're looking we at Nielsen research? Bookscan data, mm. which basically has the, um, rates of publication. And we're also um, potentially going to send out some surveys um, asking writers of color how they identify and use a culturally appropriate process for First Nations writers, including self-identification in author biographies. Mm. And then we'll compile reports based on the results and we'll um, sort of send them out or disseminate them through different outlets like JED. Would be one of them. I've already called first publication rights on that. Um, <laughs> we can discuss this more later. Peril would be another one. Peril would, yeah. I'm hoping Peril will do more in-depth analysis, whereas I just want to give out the initial results, I think. Um, but uh, sorry to cut you off a little bit. I just I just want to explain. I'm not sure that anybody outside the publishing industry is familiar with Nielsen Bookscan. Um, no, so I just, <coughs> I'm just going to explain what that is. So Nielsen Bookscan is a, um, what do you call it, like a platform or... I'm not really sure. It's a it's a play. it's like a statistical database. It's, 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 it's a database, yeah, where it keeps track of book sales across Australia. Essentially, um, publishers do have access to that uh, if you pay for it, which is we're fundraising because we need to be able to pay to access that information. Um, so basically, you pay to be able to access this database and see how. Um, um, let me look this up. Um, it, Nielsen Bookscan Australia monitors end-user consumer sales from a panel of book retailers, enabling detailed and highly accurate sales information on what books are selling at what price um, to be available to the book trade. Uh, so it basically collects data on what books have been sold, and from and that'll so that'll make it easier for us to kind of go in and see. Um, what's been published in the yeah in tw- 2018, and it'll also help us see what's been selling highly in 2018. Because I think there's also this, um, which might not be the focus of our research. This is just an area of interest for me. But um, there is also this concept that um, books by people of color don't sell. And I literally, I'm not going to mention any names, but I do know for a fact that a um, uh, publisher has told, um, like, it, it does come up within in-house um, that publishers w- are still saying even as recently as January that books by women of color don't sell <coughs> excuse me um, and it's still a very prevalent belief so I think it'll be interesting to look at sales numbers and you do have outliers like we know Maxine Benham Clark sells um, but I think yeah I, I, I'll be interested to see how we're doing in terms of the market as well um, just to kind of just to kind of challenge that belief a little bit. And I, and I wonder, like, do um, authors of colour who aren't based in Australia sell more than authors of colour mm. who are? Mm. I don't think we're looking at that directly yeah, because yeah. we are focused on Australia. But, I, again, area of interest for me. Um, I, think, I think so. I think, 
and I, I, I don't know that I have any like hard evidence to back this statement up, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> I do think, uh, so when we're bringing books over to sell here, I think Australia, uh, the Australian publishing industry is incredibly risk averse. And so they wait to see if it's selling elsewhere and then they'll bring it and then they'll sell it because they know it's a guaranteed sale. Um, So, yeah, so when... So I suspect that would be the reason we probably sell more international authors. Although international authors are amazing. And, like, I've read some, like, really incredible books from, like, UK, US, translated from Iran, that kind of stuff. Um, But I do think that is a symptom of the risk-averse nature of the publishing industry as it stands. Um, So, yeah. Tressa, thoughts? On the publishing industry? That's, that's your area. You're the publishing industry. Oh, just in general. Yeah. I just feel like I've been talking a lot. Oh, sorry. Oh, well, maybe, Tressa, like, do we know of, like, is there any similar research, research out there, um, maybe within Australia or internationally? Like, what, what's well, the research that's already out there? Yeah, there's been a few. Well, there was the, the Stella Diversity Count that I mentioned before, um, and, you know, that looked at um, the amount of writers who have been reviewed as opposed to the amount of written books that was women writers of color and it found that female authors of color comprised of a small percentage of writers who were being reviewed in Australia so like I mentioned we'd like to do something larger Um, in North America there was um, Lee and Lowe books and they launched a diversity baseline survey to gather data on book publishing and um, at the industry level I think they found that 79% 79% of people that worked in the industry, because, they were, again, they were looking at staff and reviewers, were white or Caucasian, and at the executive level, 86%. And then at the editorial department, it was 82%. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there was that study. There was Roxane Gay. She did a study. Um, she looked with another researcher at 742 book reviews in the New York Times and found that 655 were written by Caucasian authors. Mm. On a just quick side note, this is just a little fun story. I um, was trying to get Roxanne Gay to retweet, <laughs> to retweet our fundraiser. Um, she did not take the bait. She did like the tweet, however, which is the first time I've ever tagged Roxanne Gay on Twitter on anything, and she's noticed. So, success. <laughs> if Roxanne Gay likes this research, you guys, then everybody should like this research. <laughs> N.K. Jemison did retweet us. I will say that. Cool. Um, <laughs> yes, like us on social media. <laughs> Do it. And then donate. Uh, <laughs> sorry to Likes, it. shares, donations. Yes, mm. please. Um, well, I guess, like, um, how kind of... How important is it to have, like, research like this that is also led by um, FN and POP? Sorry, I should say First Nations and people of color. Mm. Yeah, I think it's very important. I mean, I like I work within academia, and I don't know. Like, I feel like there could definitely be more First Nations mm. and academics of color um, within the community. I mean, even when just giving my own com- my own opinion on my community, like while talking about. Um, studies done in Chile I found it really difficult like to talk about it like I felt like maybe people were going to see me as biased and I don't know what made me feel that way like I don't know if it was something that I read or something that somebody had said to me (laughs) yeah 
I felt like I might have read something like so it's this this whole idea of like maybe I was being biased by studying my own culture and um maybe it was just because I didn't see myself represented and I thought of whiteness as sort of a default mm. um and I remember wondering if the same thing was told to white researchers so from my experience I think it's really important because you know i does does the same thing happen when white researchers research their own culture yeah, I, I don't know but do I they even see yeah. it like that do they see it as their own culture they mm. do they go oh i'm going to go research my own own culture i doubt it they'd be like oh i'm going to go research this aspect of something yeah. but it's not going to be like oh i'm going to i'm researching my own culture no yeah. that's left for us that's Although, us that yeah. research our own cultures no one else. To be fair, can you imagine if a non-person of color was like i'm going to research white people <laughs> only white people like whiteness studies whiteness they're studies. great oh Chill my out. god Griffith, doesn't Griffith offer that? Oh, is it Griffith? What is the university that's now offering a... Um, oh, the Western Civilization. Yes, the oh, Western yeah. Civilization. <laughs> well, oh my God, I was making a joke about white people research. No, that is actually a thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but uh, no, there's like Dr. Ghassan Hajj and mm. um, Dr. Eileen Morton Robinson have some great talking up to the white woman. Mm. It's a, a brilliant book and these are amazing researchers. Yeah. Um, and I think like, I, I remember Idil Ali in 2017... Um, from Rise was talking about at the Walk for Justice for Refugees on Palm Sunday, and she said, we are the experts of our narratives. And I always found that incredibly powerful. Mm. I mean, I think it's relevant in so many ways. And I think it's important to consider, yes, study is really important. Research is really important, but also our backgrounds are really important. We are experts. Yeah, absolutely. And I have a couple of points hopefully I won't forget them um, while I'm talking but I think I think it's an interesting question to say like why is it important that this research is being done by is being led by First Nations and other people of color um, I, I think I think the most interesting thing about that it's like apart from of, of, I mean for me it's like fairly obvious why it should be done that way but the other thing the other thing that kind of gets me is like why people weren't doing it do you know what I mean? Like it's so we've just said like similar studies have been conducted in the U.S. and the U.K. And where was the interest in doing that in Australia? Like, so it's not even it's not even a matter of like you know we saw other people doing it and we we're like no no this should be led by us you know nothing about us without us. It's not even a matter of that. It's that they don't give crap. Like they, well, they don't even realize. <laughs> or they like, don't even, even realize. It, it's not. That's what I mean. It's not even on their radar. So it's not like. I mean, it is necessary that it's led by us, but it's also necessary in the sense that it wouldn't, we wouldn't, it wouldn't exist if we hadn't thought of it. Um, and that bothers me. It bothers me that nobody's apparently given enough of a shit to look into this before, um, or, or if they, if they, or if it's occurred to them, they've just been like, oh well, like I guess people of color suck at writing, or whatever it is. So, so, so there's that aspect. Yeah. There's the initiatives. I mean, that we mentioned before, which are really great. I mean, mm-hmm. I've had people come up to me and say, what a great project. And I'm like, please share it. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Like, but yeah, it does. It's something that really kind of affects us greatly. And mm. I think that sort of speaks to the idea that there's so much interest. There's so much investment. There's so much sharing of the project. Oh, yeah. So far, because there's something that really impacts our, our everyday lives. Yeah, yeah. We've definitely had a lot of interest. Like, I think the... Because, again, I am obsessive. Um, so I'm just going to sorry jump in. Mm-hmm. Um, but just be- we are running out of time. And just before we wrap up, do you, can you tell the listeners how they can find out, donate, um, or get involved? Yeah. 
So um, if you go to the Australian Cultural Fund, ACF, um, you can pretty much just Google it and um, uh, look up First Nations and POC Riders Count. That's what the count is called. Um, and that's on uh, the ACF website. Um, so that's where the main fundraiser is happening. Um, you can also... Uh, I mean, like I said, Jed, so Jed Press has been going hard on it. I don't think I've even published anything recently in favour of just really promoting this. So if you know, if you can't find it on ACF, it'll be on all of like Jed Press's social media channels. Um, yeah, First Nations and POC Writers Count—that is what it's called. Okay, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Um, so Grace, that was that's kind of the end of our show. So um, first up, we had um, Carly, who spoke with counsellor and narrative uh, therapist Michelle Dang from Healing and Justice. Then we had um, James Tresice, um, who talked a bit about the um, how the Great Dividing Range is going to become climatically unsuitable for um, 26 native species. And then we had Mark from the Earthworker Collective that was talking about climate change and workers' co-ops. Um, and uh, breakfast will be back tomorrow and Thursday breakfast will be back next week. 3CR relies on the support of ethical organisations to keep our vital community of voices on air. And we'd like to thank our breakfast supporters, the new international bookshop, Nibs, at Trades Hall. You can check them out at nibs.org.au. And if you'd like more information on how your organisation can become a 3CR supporter, contact the station on 03 9419 8377.